Hello, and welcome to this download from Faber and Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Andrew Sean Greer. Andrew came into the Faber offices on a recent visit from San Francisco to talk to me about his new novel, The Story of a Marriage. The story is recounted by Pearlie Cook, looking back in old age at the events of 1953, which turned her quite suburban life in the mist-and-shrouded sunset area of San Francisco upside down. A figure from her husband's past comes into their lives, and nothing is ever the same again. I asked Andrew how he set about finding a voice for Pearlie, a character whose experience is so different from his own. I, I had to work very hard to develop it because it was... I mean, for me, writing a novel, really the hardest part is is finding the, the way to tell it. I mean, I think anyone knows that when if they try to tell a story, that you work on it in order to find the right way to tell it and the pacing of it and the right voice and tone. And so it took a while. And it, the hard part for me, it didn't feel like, was writing in the voice of of a woman, for instance, or, or someone very different experience than my own, but really to find her own character that would get the tone of someone late in life remembering her younger self and expressing the emotion she had then with the remove that comes from from age. There's, there's quite a lot of reflection on that, on that distance that she's travelled from her younger self. She's now looking back from that position of, of accumulated knowledge, if you like. Yeah, well, and, and some t- it, it took a while for me to be able to write with saying, I did not know that then, but what I was probably experiencing was this. So she's able to have that remove. But I also wanted it to feel very immediate and intense and not entirely so distant from her other self. And I wanted her to have some empathy for her younger self and what she was going through. The book is set in 1953 in the shadow of the Second World War and also with the immediate present of the Korean War. Was was that something which you knew was going to be the setting from the start, or did you gravitate towards that? Well, it, will, it sounds like a very subtle shift, but I, I moved the novel from 1952 to 1953, and for me it was a large change, because I had done I had wanted it to take place right after the war. I wanted it to take place at a, at a moment when the waters felt rather still in America, right before they were about to start moving again. And then I realized 53... There was so much going on, Rosenbergs and uh, sort of communist hearings and, and the Korean War, that I had to put it there without trying to put too much history into the book. A lot happens off stage, doesn't it, or is sort of reported at, at second hand in the book, and yet you're very aware that that Pearlie is aware of what's going on in, in her wild, you mentioned the Rosenberg case, which is very prominent, and, and the war, but it's always slightly removed or muffled. Yeah, well, it was. It's very hard because I know that we don't experience, we don't live in history that way, and we don't know what's going to turn out to be important. And so I, I tried to pay attention to what she would have read in the papers and would have responded to. And in the Rosenberg case, what she responds to is Ethel Rosenberg as a wife, and that's the only reason I I put it in because I thought she would have a feeling about that. And the book is a portrait of a marriage, in a way, a portrait of other things too. And I suppose that the centre around which much of the book gravitates is Holland Cook, the, the husband of, of Pearlie. And yet in many ways he's, he's almost like an absence. He doesn't say very much. You don't hear very much about his inner thoughts. My first inclination was to pin him down. And I have versions, early versions, where his, eventually his thoughts and motives are entirely clear. And that felt disingenuous. That felt like that wasn't Pearlie's experience of him. 
and when I'm thinking back on 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 that generation, it's not my experience of say my own grandfather, the very um, passive, reticent person. And I had to go back there. I had to sort of embrace that ambiguity as really what was at the heart of the book. And it was only then when I got to write the beginning all over again once I'd finished a draft and now it starts um, we think we know the ones we love and it turns out that ambiguity of knowing another person was what the book was about his his reticence really his withheldness means that when near the end of the book you actually do get a glimpse of how he saw things it's, it's, an, it's an amazingly cathartic moment I felt as a reader I'm, I'm glad to hear that because it took a long time for me that was one of the last things I wrote was to try to get one moment of, of glimpsing for an instant, for her to see for one instant what his experience was and, to, and to, to feel how difficult it must have been for him all that time. She was so focused on herself and seeing him as a blank, but he was, in a way, having the same experience of her. The, the narrative goes through all sorts of emotional weather of their marriage, and you or she finds all sorts of ways of, of trying to encapsulate this particular relationship. One that particularly stuck in my mind was she, she compares marriage to a hotel shower, where you think you've, you've, got, you've adjusted it just right, it's just right for you, and then someone in the next room turns on the water and suddenly it's scalding and you've got to all over again start to, to try, and, try and adjust it. And I, I thought that, that effort of hers in, in later life to try to, to work out just what is going on between two people was, was absolutely central and captivating aspect of the book. Well, I actually remember when I thought of that metaphor, I was in book tour in uh, Germany, in Berlin, and was having that experience in a hotel. <laughs> Someone I could tell was on the other side of the wall working out their shower and was ruining my shower, and I was doing the same to them. And then I, I was already working on this book, and I thought, well, that's that's how she's going to think of it. I mean, her, her younger self will think of it that way, and her older self will forgive that young woman for that misunderstanding. What really drives the plot is the appearance of a third character from Holland's past who comes into their lives and, and completely changes it and, and leads them all to have to think about both the, the past, present, and, and the future. Can you say a little bit about, about Buzz and where he, where he comes from, as it were? Well, there are two aspects. One is is that he's, he's sort of a, a character from a family story of mine, of, uh, of someone who came into my grandmother's life and, and overturned things. And in some ways I think of him, if there's any character that's somewhat like me, it's him. And he has a very sure idea of what he wants from life. And his idea is that he's going to, in a way, he thinks he's going to sort of free everybody to have what they want. But he hasn't asked anyone else what they want. He just assumes it. There are quite a number of conversations. There are more conversations between Pearly and Buzz in the book than between the husband and wife by some quite some margin. And the word that I wrote down as I was reading the book, which seemed to me to kind of encapsulate for me the, the tonality of, of those conversations was sotto voce. There's a lot in the atmosphere that seems to be happening almost in whispers or half said or by indirection and that, that seemed to me to kind of kind of capture a lot of the the secrecy and indirection of, of what was going on between the characters in the book. Well it was it was it was very hard because in the book, in a way, there's not a lot happening, although I think for the reader it feels like there's a great deal happening because it's there's constant revelation. But I, I I knew that what I wanted most was a feeling that these these two characters who are so different and are opposite sides in a way Buzz and Pearly, 
that they would be the ones who connect of all unlikely things and would feel almost like partners in this crime, I suppose. Another part of the the atmosphere of the book is fog. It's set in one of the suburbs of San Francisco called Sunset. And it's not perhaps our, our normal British expectation of what San Francisco is like because the fog seems to be enveloping everything and there's a there's a fun fair where Buzz and Pally often meet. That seemed to me to really to say a lot about the kind of atmosphere of, of what was going on between the characters. Well, I, I knew when I was setting it in San Francisco that I, I didn't want it to be bright, sunny California life. And since I live there, I know there's a whole neighborhood that is, to me, fascinating because it's in the, the playland is gone, but it's just ocean now, ocean beach. But there used to be a huge roller coasters and Ferris wheels and sort of tunnels of love and fun houses and houses of horror all along there, covered in fog all year. No sun, cold winds blowing, a different world from the rest of San Francisco. And I could tell that that was the setting I wanted of sort of calliope sounds, the fog, a kind of closed-in, claustrophobic world that um, was the only place that this story could, could take place. Your 1950s is, is very vividly evoked, and yet at the same time very economically evoked. You don't go to town and, and give descriptions which would be alien to Parley, I, I, I think. But I wondered how you, how you, as a writer, set about researching that to capture the, the feel, not just the product names, but the sort of, the sort of feel of the, the 1950s. There's a, there's a very memorable description of a drugstore and the soda jerk pulling these, these, these sodas. And I wondered how, you, how did you do the research for that? There were a, a variety of, of ways. There was I read the newspaper, the San Francisco Chronicle, in 1952 first, because I'd said it there first, and then all of 1953, or most of it, looking for initially also what how people saw the time they lived in, when it was lived, instead of our received history of that time. And then I, I did interviews with people, and some of it was, was just full, imagined from what the experience would be like. And then I learned from other novels to get rid of almost all my research and leave just the parts that I thought were, were telling bits because otherwise it feels belabored and, and not at all natural. Although it is, it's so hard, there's so many amazing products in those newspapers that it was, it was hard to take them out. When you say you learned from other novels, do you mean um, examples of how not to do it? No, I I'd learned um, successfully, I think, well, from my last novel, The Confessions of Max Tivoli, um, I removed about 150 pages of research mm. about Victorian America and realized that um, you must do heavy research and then you must show almost nothing because then it's more persuasive because that's how we really talk about mm. the past. And if you don't know something, you talk about it more. You sound like a liar. Mm. And I think the, the economy of means that I referred to, I mean, it's almost sort of Chekhovian. It seemed to me that when you mention a letter, the letter is kind of there in in their sort of psychic world and it comes back, or a gun, and it's got it, all these things. They're not, they're not there as mere decorative props. They, they really carry a lot of weight. That's good to hear. Yes, I did that on purpose. It's not a cluttered novel because of that. And so there's a letter that I put, and it, I needed the reader to pay attention to it, and, and a gun also um, that has that same feeling of like something's going to be put to use and sometimes it's um, 
not the way you expect. But I, I used every object, gloves she wears, and lipstick purposefully, and not just as decoration. So was this novel ever... You said you took out a lot, lot of research, but was it ever a much bigger canvas that you then really reined in as you edited yourself? Well, there was there are some of the um, you hear about their their lives during the war. Um, it sort of loops back, and you realize that there's things that you haven't been told. And some of those was very tempting to expand into large portions. There's a story about conscientious objector camps uh, during World War II that is so riveting to me as a subject that it was very hard to to boil it down. But I, I've learned that you really have to pay attention to the story you're telling and not just the thing you're interested in in order to pay attention to the reader and their experience. Now, here's a, a delicate question to ask any writer, but I'm emboldened to ask it because of a review I read, and I think it was the LA Times, about beautiful writing, because the book is beautiful. There are, there are sentences you, you want to sort of savour, like, like lines of poetry. But a reviewer said... It's, it's so beautiful, it's almost disruptive, because uh, I presume they meant it, it interrupts that sort of forward flow of, of the narrative. And I wondered, did you wrestle w- with yourself as you were writing to, to say, you know, this, is just, this is just too beautiful, Pearlie wouldn't have conceived of it in this way, and, and, and did things go on the, on the cutting room floor because of that? Oh, yes, there's so much cut. I, I have the novel, I think, in, in the Faber version is 195 pages. My file of cuts is... is is 400 pages. Mm. Now, that's, that's a lot of repeat material in there, but I, I tried to remove as much as possible to make it, to make it Pearlie's voice, but I always saw hers as a, a lyrical form and that her inner life, her inner thinking, would be, would be full and rich and deep in that way, and that would give her a sort of a dignity looking back because she's, she's an older woman telling the story and she has had other life experiences we don't know about that give a depth to her understanding. And so I don't think it's something to, to, to trip up over, mm. I don't think. But I, in a small book, I wanted the experience to be one of intensity. Mm. Well, my experience as a reader wasn't everything counted. And I, I wanted to also to compliment you on um, the best supporting role by a dog, I think, in a novel that I've read lately. <laughs> you see, because he could so easily, Lyle could so easily have, have gone, but, but he seemed to carry, you know, he seemed to, he really played his part, I felt. Say a little bit about him. It was, he was, I really wanted to put a dog in a book for some reason, and it's a tough thing because it's an incredibly sentimental subject. And I, I think, uh, I didn't do any research into the, the breed, but she has gotten a barkless dog. Um, I guess the Basenji is a barkless dog, although Lyle is, is, I think, a mutt off of that because she's trying to care for, for her husband's, what she thinks of as his heart condition. And he starts to take on... I kept him in the book. I could have cut something like that easily. That's the kind of thing I would cut. He took on a, a, an emblematic quality in the house. And um, and one point, I he runs away. And that also something I could have cut but became very important to me and it was a it was a it was a great thing for me to write about I think after finishing my first draft I actually got a dog myself I was so in love with the idea I'd never owned a dog before <laughs> so you kind of you kind of summoned up a fictional dog and that had given you an appetite to be a real dog owner right yeah but I did, I did not it's a it's a her so it's not a lot not called Lyle but called Olive yeah and does she have a bug she turns out she does, <laughs> but she's a she's a pug dog. They're not meant to bark that much, but she does. 
I think it's amazing. You, you mentioned the, the clippings from the newspaper. I think you know, things being taken out and silent and the barkless dog in a book which is so much about things being withheld and being secret. And yet there are, there are these great sort of forward leaps as a plot, you know, these plot, plot revelations which we can't talk about. But getting that balance struck me as a, as a, a difficult thing to, to bring off. It's a delicate balance. Yeah, well, it's, it was, that's why my cuts is 400 pages, because there's so many versions of the book with different ways of telling it and putting um, some of the stories that are passed at different points in the book and trying it out in every kind of pacing, because there's, there's actually very few elements in the book, as fleshed out as they are. It's really the style of the storytelling that, that was the major work that I did, and it wasn't creating new sentences. It was creating new patterns of reading so so yes I, I i had to work with those revelations to make sure they add up and um to make sure that the reader is surprised but is able to go back and see where it was hinted at along the way and not feel that there's a novelist playing a game with them through a sort of ventriloquial no right no you don't want them to throw the book across the room you want them to maybe go back 10 pages and reread it again. That would be unfair. None of them are meant to be tricks. Uh, they're meant to be part of the pleasure of reading. Andrew Sean Greer, thank you very much. Thank you so much.